Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 on Name Tag Sunday. If you don't have a name tag, God bless you too. We want to know your name because we believe in calling someone by their name. We're family. And we are just making our large church small so that we can say, hello, my name is. Now, Mark chapter 8 as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to Mark. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts. Our Father, we are so thankful for the great grace of God that you have given us to be able to have the Word of God and to be able to know the Word of God and to be able to live the Word of God. And Jesus, I pray now that as we study, that you would open up our eyes so that we might be able to take your word and let it change our lives. We love you, Jesus. We love you a lot. And we ask you now, give us the grace that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark has taken two chapters to show us the diligence of Christ. Christ has been trying to teach the disciples a simple lesson of faith. I am the bread of life. That is the lesson that he's trying to get across. That he is all that we need. He is all that we should want. He completely satisfies. Completely satisfies. And even Jesus himself said, you will never thirst or hunger again. I am your complete satisfaction. Yet, like us, we can't be too hard on the disciples. The disciples are having a hard time with this lesson of faith. You remember, he even used visuals. He used experience. There was the feeding of the 5,000. There was the feeding of the 4,000. And then they get in the boat and they start an argument over, we forgot the bread. And Jesus, I can just see him putting his hand on his forehead like this. Don't you know who's in the boat with you? I am the bread of life. You're missing the whole point. You're arguing about forgetting bread, but you forgot I provided bread for 5,000 people. I provided bread for 4,000 people. You have lost the point, disciples. Are you so hard of understanding? Do you have eyes, but you cannot perceive? I'm the bread of life. But now, Mark is going to introduce to us a new topic. Jesus is going to teach a new lesson. Now, it's connected to the first lesson in the fact that Jesus is the all-sufficient one, that he satisfies every need in a progression of lessons that Mark is giving us. And this lesson of faith is that Christ is sufficient in suffering. Oh, Pastor Chet, I brought a friend. 
You're not going to do a suffering sermon, are you? Yes, I am. Christ is sufficient in suffering. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 8. I ask you to turn there. Verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying, so they're on a road trip. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Stop there if you would. Jesus is finally going on the retreat with the disciples. And let me tell you something about retreats. They're spiritual Jesus went, took his disciples on a retreat, and he's taking them away for a tithe of time to have a spiritual encounter with them. So ladies, this is not a shameless plug for the women's retreat, nor for the men's retreat, nor for the youth retreat, nor for the singles retreat. Oh, that's right, singles. You heard it. It's coming. Retreats are spiritual. Retreats is something that Jesus put into practice. And the reason that we have women's retreats and men's retreats, the reason we have couples retreats and singles retreats and youth retreats is because we're following the way of Jesus. He took his disciples on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I may need to explain, and I'm going to actually show you an artist's rendering of Caesarea Philippi to the right there To the left would be the temple to Caesar Augustus. And right there in the center would have been the temple to the god Pan or the god of nature. You see, Caesarea Philippi is where the gods were worshipped. And so Jesus is on a road trip. And while he's on the road, he asks a spiritual question. That's why when we go on retreats, we want you to go together so that you can have spiritual conversations like Jesus on the way to the retreat. Well, while they're there, they're on their way to this particular place. And there to the left, like I said, is the temple to Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus was known as the Son of God. Because he was the foster child, adopted son of Caesar Julius, Julius Caesar. And so it was into that that Jesus Christ, the true son of God, was born while Caesar Augustus was reigning, but now he's died. And so the world, the Roman world at the time, wanted to worship him. And so everyone in every town, if you were a true Roman, you had a temple to Caesar Augustus, the small s, son of small g, God. There was also the cult worship of Pan. Pan. He was a goat-like looking figure. Why you would worship a goat-like looking figure actually blows my mind. But at the same time, here is the Lord Jesus taking them into this, well, small g God little town center. And what Jesus is doing, he is using the experience. He's a visual aid kind of teacher. And he's going to use this moment to be able to drive home the point. He's taking them to the place where the Son of God is worshipped. He's taking them to the place where the God of nature is worshipped. And he asks them a question, who do men say that I am? 
Now, it amazes me, this question. Because in the question is the answer. This would be like me saying, listen carefully, as a Bahamian, where was I born? (laughs) The question is like, hello, disciples. He's breaking it down very plainly and very simply. Who do men say that I am? Remember, that's how God introduced himself to Moses. He called himself I am. And he's still trying to get across the point that he, Jesus, is the all-sufficient one, the only one that satisfies. He's everything that we need for our life. Well, the disciples, they give the crowd's answer. Some say, do you know what I find amazing about Jesus Christ? What I find amazing is the world always has an opinion as to who Jesus is. For some, he's a word that, well, they say when they get mad. For some, oh, he was just a good man. For some, he never existed. For some, oh, he was a problem to the Jewish religion. You see, the world has always had an opinion of Jesus Christ. But just because they have an opinion doesn't make it valid. Because Jesus told us who he is. It is going to be in this moment that we're going to hear the very definition of God. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. Let me explain. We don't need the world's opinion to define who Jesus is. God has done it for us. And I believe God over the world. Now... Take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 29. So they, uh, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? This question is very important, and this question comes to everyone sitting and listening to my voice, whether you're in this auditorium or you're listening online. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you're the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about it. Jesus makes it personal. He always makes it personal. That's why when you're sitting in here and meet me in the lobby and say, did my wife call you? No. Jesus always makes sermons personal. He always hits us right in the heart. You see, this is the question being asked of all of us. Who do you say that I am? You see, what we believe about Christ is how we will behave in our faith. If he is your I am, your all-sufficient one, your bread of life, then there's nothing else that's going to satisfy you more than him. Let me give you an example. I realized a very hard lesson only two weeks ago. That's right, Pastor Chet. And I can't believe Chet fell off and Chester remains. (laughs) I'm overwhelmed with it right now. feel like the Lord is going to humble me even more. I went to a conference two weeks ago, and I, I had to go by myself. I, my whole theme of life is glorify God together. Like, I love to be with people. So I thought, okay, Lord, maybe you're going to have me meet a new friend. So I, like a puppy dog, was running up to everybody trying to find a new friend. Nobody wanted to be my friend. 
I was amidst thousands of people, and the Lord really ministered to me that when someone new comes into our church and they don't know anyone, we should attack them with love. Because I was walking up to everybody, and everybody had their group, and they had their people, and I was the California guy out on the East Coast, and you know what the East Coast people think of California people. And I looked like a California guy, right? So it's like, I'm walking up, hey, what's up, dude? You know, it's like, nobody wanted to talk to me. So I leave for dinner by myself, and I go to my hotel room, and I decide, okay, I'm just going to pray through my dinner time. And so I took Ephesians chapter 6, and I went through spiritual armor, and I was praying for two hours. And at the end of my prayer, I'm like, Lord, I'd just like to meet someone. I didn't meet anyone that night. I wake up the next morning, and I'm not that excited to go to the conference, but I'm on my way anyway because I paid for it, and here I am. And I got a text from Pastor Dennis. I'm praying that the Lord meets with you while you're there. And God spoke to me. Chet, you've been praying to meet with someone. I met with you yesterday, and you're still asking me for a human. You met with the king of the universe, and you would like to meet someone at the conference. And then I almost heard him say, God bless you. That's what I was thinking. Is he really our all-sufficient one? You see, Matthew gives us a little more vivid picture. Mark, is, he just goes from thing to thing. We know how Mark's style is. But Matthew stops for a minute, and he helps us understand a little bit more what Peter said and what Jesus responded. Would you take a look at the screen with me? It's Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter had answered when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Now, that question goes to all of us. He responded, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, there is no way that you came up with that answer. It was God who expressed that answer to you, and your connection with God has opened the door for him to be able to tell you who I am. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am the son of the living God. God gave the definition of Jesus. Who cares what the world thinks about him? God said he's the anointed one. You see, truly, we don't care what the world's opinion is about Jesus. We have God's definition of Jesus. And it is with that definition, do we believe it? And then do we behave what we believe? Jesus He tells them, listen, don't tell anyone. Let me tell you why. Because it was God that revealed this definition to Peter, but Peter didn't fully understand what it meant. It was God that said, you're the Christ. Peter reiterated what God had ministered to his heart, but they didn't understand. You see, for them, they thought that the Christ meant, you're going to establish rule on earth. 
Matthew will be your tax collector, and I'll, Peter, I'll be your vice president, and maybe James and John will let them in, but I'm not too sure because we're in an argument right now about who's the greatest in the kingdom, so <laughs> we'll see what they do, and I wanted to fire them when they were working with me anyway. So I just imagine what they were thinking. We're going to usher in the, the kingdom. And Jesus knew that if they went and told people that maybe a political or a religious insurrection would happen, Jesus, he wasn't concerned about a political or religious kingdom. The question was, who do you say that I am? He was concerned about a personal relationship, and he knew in order for us to have a personal relationship with him, he was going to have to die on a cross. Peter didn't get that. Verse 31. And he began to teach. Here's the lesson. He began a new lesson Mark is introducing to us. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, underline this in your Bible, must suffer many things. There's our lesson. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he spoke, this, he spoke this word openly. So it was an open-air teaching. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, if you think rebuking the Son of God is a good idea, let me tell you it's not. <laughs> Verse 33, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying... So Peter takes him aside. Jesus turns to the disciples because he knows that Peter is representing them as their mouthpiece. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. For you are not mindful. That's a good word to circle of the things of God, but the things of men. The lesson begins. And I need to let you know, listen, Christian, this lesson is a difficult one, not just for the disciples. It's a difficult one for us. It's connected to the one that we've already learned. You see, we've learned that Jesus is the bread of life. We've learned that he is to be our satisfaction. Now what Mark is going to do is tell us why he needs to be our satisfaction. Because in this world, there's going to be suffering. Now this is not a lesson that Mark caught the first time. Do you remember when Mark went out on the first missionary journey? And he left because there was suffering. He left because there was sacrifice. He ran from Christian service because it got difficult. Mark is making sure we understand this very clear. He wants us to make sure that we know the significance in our Christian faith. Listen carefully, that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. Listen to the lesson. The Son of Man must suffer. If you're a teacher and you go to your lesson plan book, the title of today's message is, the title of today's curriculum is, The Son of Man Must Suffer. And then the things and the objectives that I'm trying to get across as the teacher is what Jesus said is the suffering. There will be rejection. You see, Jesus was rejected because he was righteous. He was doing God's will God's way. And do you know in our world 
that if you choose to go God's will and go God's way, you as well will be rejected. It's just what it is. There's a suffering for going God's will and God's way. Jesus lets the disciples know that he was killed. His flesh was destroyed by the will of God. Do you know that the will of God for our lives is that you destroy your flesh? Just tell yourself tomorrow morning, flesh, I'm not giving you caffeine. There is no coffee for a week. Your brain will go, oh yeah, here's a migraine. Just tell your flesh tomorrow, we're going on a diet. No more sugar. I actually almost lost consciousness. Flesh is evil. And when you tell flesh you're putting it under control, it says, try me. It's a suffering. But when there's a death and a burial, there will always be a resurrection. He rose from the grave victoriously over the flesh because suffering always leads to glory. See, Peter, he pulls Jesus aside. (laughs) Now, whenever, like I said, you think you're going to give Jesus a one-up, whenever you think like you're going to go to God and go, (laughs) I know you're telling me to be kind, but you don't know who you're asking me to be kind to, so you must be wrong. There's a problem with that. And at this point, Peter is displaying for us humanistic ideology. Let me tell you what it is. Self-preservation. That's why we wear deodorant. That's why we bathe. We are doing everything we can to keep flesh alive. It's why you go to the airport and you see some people like this. It's why you go to or, uh, out and around and you smell perfume. We're doing everything we can to keep flesh young, alive, and active. Humanistic ideology is self-preservation. I'll never forget, I learned this lesson about myself many years ago. I was spearfishing with a friend of mine in the Bahamas, and a shark came at me. I saw the shark, and it swam around me, and then all of a sudden, it did a U-turn, and it charged me. So it came up from underneath me, and all I could see was its mouth, just like this. Have you ever looked down the mouth of a shark? (laughs) With teeth? They have rows of teeth, not just one little teeth. They have rows of teeth. That's why we find so many shark teeth, because they have so many teeth. And I put my hands up like this. I screamed like a five-year-old girl. I peed in the water. (laughs) Then I ran on the water. I experienced Peter. (laughs) I left my friend in the water with the shark. He sees the shark starts swimming for the boat. You would think, Pastor Chet, I'd help him. Nope. I don't throw him a line. I don't do anything. The shark is swimming for him. He's trying to get in the boat. He can't get in the boat. I don't even help him. He finally gets in the boat, and I realize what I have done. I have preserved my own life. 
And the man that I love, one of my dearest still to this day, I can't believe he likes me, this, my, one of my dearest friends, I look at him and I go, I can't believe I did that. He goes, it's okay. I go, no, it's not okay. In front of my name is pastor. Like, I'm supposed to sacrifice my life for you. And I'm all the way home. I'm weeping. I'm like, I can't believe I was going to let you die in the water. He goes, it's okay. Like, I'm okay. We didn't die. You didn't die. We're all good. I go, I can't believe I did this. I was more concerned about me. And I realized I'm a lot more like Peter than I thought. We all are. We've all been infected with this humanistic way of life. This humanistic ideology of self-preservation. In fact, let me tell you how. Every single one of us are in pursuit of the American dream. I immigrated over here for it. I wanted my success story. Peter's no different than us. He was looking for the Jerusalem dream. You're the Christ. That means you're the king. That means I'm your best friend. That means I got a lot of glory ahead of me. Woo! I made a good decision following you. Peter, don't tell anybody yet. Jesus knew their struggle. And whenever you challenge the teaching of Christ, you open yourself up to the lies of the enemy. So if you're going to challenge that suffering leads to glory, you're opening yourself up to the lies of the enemy. You'll actually not just believe the American dream, you'll start behaving and pursuing, and life will all become about what you can get and the success that you can have instead of what Jesus is about to communicate. Jesus knew they were struggling with this as disciples. He knew that Peter was their spokesperson. So he says this ideology is satanic. Because if the mind of God is that suffering leads to glory, then the thinking of the enemy is that glory should come without any form of suffering. Take the easy road. Live the comfortable path. Walk down the comfortable path. Why don't you just take a left turn on Avenue Convenient? What do you mean you're going to have to struggle? I mean, this is what the enemy offered Jesus. Look, if you just bow down, I'll make it easy for you. Just bow down, I'll give you the world. You don't have to die for it. Let me give you the easy road. Come on, Jesus, just bow down. And Jesus says to that ideology, get behind me. When he says don't do it the hard way, God says suffering leads to glory. Yet the mind of Christ is that suffering produces the glory. I mean, this makes such practical sense. Let me explain Ask the Marine recruit who goes through boot camp how beneficial the hard time was. Ask the athlete who goes through a difficult suffering practice when they're wearing the gold if they remember the practice. Ask the farmer who sows or the student who studies to become a doctor. Suffering leads to glory. This is a practical ideology. 
And Jesus is capitalizing on what's true, and he's making it very clear in a spiritual sense that suffering leads to glory. So what Jesus does, he keeps going with this lesson despite this satanic interruption. So will I. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them. Now Jesus, he uses this now to bring everybody in to communicate this incredible truth that true Christian faith is found in self-sacrifice. And there are going to be three things that Jesus communicates to this group. Let's take a look and see these three things. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's the objectives. The lesson is, Christians suffer. The objectives he's trying to get across is, here's how you do it. Deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow Christ. Now, I would need to define what these are. First, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. This is not the self-will of denying chocolate tomorrow. That's not what this is. This is the decision to deny you of you. This is the decision of actually purposing no longer to think your way, to act your way, to live your way, but to allow Christ, the hope of glory, to live through you. That every decision that is you-based becomes Christ-based. And every time you go to make a you-based decision, it's only a reminder of how self-preservation is such a part of us and how desperate we are to pray so that we become more like Christ. It's embracing the suffering that leads to glory. Take a look at Joshua. Do you remember? When he crossed over to the Jordan into the promised land, there were battles to fight. There was suffering to go through. And he fought battles the whole time that he was in the promised land. And in the same way, as a believer, you're living in your promised land. And there are battles for you to fight. And one day, you will find rest. It's when Jesus looks at you face to face and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the truth of Scripture. Then he says, take up his cross. Jesus went to the cross to do God's will. You see, the action of doing God's will in our life is going to bring suffering. You remember, Jesus was rejected. If you choose to go to work and not curse like everybody else, they're going to look at you and go, really? What do you think, you're Holy Mary? You think you're Saint Joseph? Rejection is going to come when you choose to live a different life. Rejection is going to be a part of the righteousness that God's will is. You see, the death of flesh is going to produce suffering. When you want to do it your way, and you want to have it your way, but Christ's Spirit speaks to you, that's not my way, you're going to have to suffer what you want so that you can choose to go God's way. I've mentioned it a hundredfold. Is it just simple forgiveness that you're not able to forgive from your heart? That's not God's way. And just like our couple said, when no said... What's in it for me? I mean, I get to forgive him, but what about all my pain? 
She's communicating a truth. I had to suffer what I wanted because I wanted more the bread of life because he's my satisfier. And despite what I'm going through, I'm going to choose his way. Take up his cross. Thirdly, he says, follow me, follow Christ. Now, when Peter came to Christ, Christ would look at him and say this, you are Simon, I know what I'm getting. You shall be Cephas. That's what he said. You are Simon. I know who you are. I know you're loud mouth. I know you're selfish. And I know you're going to jump in the ocean with me. A shark's going to attack and you're going to leave me in the water. I know exactly what I'm getting. You are Simon. But you shall be Cephas. You see, following him is the lifelong pursuit of learning his way and living it. Peter got it. Take a look at the screen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Whoa, this is Peter who said you can't go to the cross. He says this, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Since Christ suffered You suffer. Peter got it. Suffering leads to glory. Peter understood that to deny himself means that he was going to have to suffer to do what God wanted him to do. Mark chapter 8. Let's now pick it up in verse 35. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Now remember, he's speaking to believers. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Be reminded, I know applicably, that we use this for a message of salvation. Come to Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. But we got to remember that Jesus is speaking to believers and put this in context. We've got to remember that he's called the disciples to him. He's called believers who need a spiritual upgrade to become disciples. Because there is a difference between a believer and a disciple. Listen carefully. Even the demons believe. There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. A disciple is someone who desires to come after him. I don't care what it takes. I'm getting to Jesus. I don't care what it takes. I've got a passion to learn his way and to live it. And what Jesus is saying, why waste your Christian life by having the mindset of Satan? Why live your Christian life wanting to gain the whole world? Jesus is making it clear. Why have that mindset and waste your Christian experience? What's the mindset? Oh, you know, money. Materials, me. There's the mindset. Power, 
prestige, prominence, portfolio. There's the mindset. Status, worldly success, followers on Instagram. Jesus said, this way of thinking, listen to the word he used, is adulterous. Let me tell you what he's trying to get across. Listen carefully, church. You want a relationship with God for your eternity, but until then, you're going to have an affair with the world. That's what he's saying. You want an eternity with God. So I'm going I'm to be a believer. I'm going to come to Christ. But until I die, I'm going to have an affair with the world. He says that's adulterous. He says it's sinful. And we've got to be careful that we don't develop this humanistic theology like Peter because the humanistic theology of money materials me, power, prestige, prominence, portfolio, status, and success is a satanic theology. When Jesus is getting across that suffering leads to glory. Now, Peter, he's made a profound statement of Christ. He said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But the problem was he didn't know what it meant. So what he did was he started defining it himself instead of letting Jesus define it for him. You're the Christ. I'm going to be the vice president. Matthew can be the tax collector. Woo! Let's go, Jesus. He had the wrong thinking that power, prestige, and prominence was attached to it. It's like the 1980s when the faith movement came through and believed that suffering was not a part of the Christian experience. If you're sick, he'll heal you. If you pray hard enough, you'll get the money you want. Whatever it is, you go to Jesus because by his stripes, you are healed. It's a wrong theology. The right theology is what Jesus is communicating about himself, that suffering is what leads to glory. Do you know that Jesus said the road is narrow and the way is difficult? Is that a plaque on your fridge? Like, is that a Thomas Kincaid picture that you got? A little beautiful road going, and it says the road is difficult. The, way, the road is narrow. The way is difficult. How many of us have memorized that scripture? Strive to enter. Jesus knows what we're up against in a sinful world. He knows we're up against rejection. So he's honest with us. And he tells us if you're going to be a Christian, there's going to be suffering. Because not only do you have the world, you're going to have to wrestle with your flesh. You're going to have to constantly deny yourself. And to graciously help the disciples understand this. I'm going to read this very quickly. He gives another illustration. He takes him up to Mount Hermon. Look what he says in Matthew, Mark chapter 9. Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Now next week, we're going to detail this a little bit more. But just stay with me as I read. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shiny, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah, Elijah, appeared to them with Moses. Remember how they suffered? And they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Now Jesus gets a downgrade from Peter. He was the Christ. Now he's just a teacher. Rabbi, 
It's good for us to be here. I think Peter's upset with Jesus because he rebuked him. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's stay up on this mountain with Jesus. I don't ever want to leave Calvary Chapel South Bay because that means I've got to go in the world and be rejected. Because he didn't know what to say. And I found if you don't know what to say, just don't say anything. For they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came over and shadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Peter, I already told you that. And look what he says. Hear him. You're not listening, guys. That's what he says. And God confirms what Jesus is saying. Suffering leads to glory. Now take a look at this. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore. But, underline this, only Jesus with themselves. There's the point. Only Jesus. He's my bread of life. Even if I go through suffering, he still satisfies me. This phrase is one of the most important phrases in the whole Bible. That no matter what we go through on this earth, no matter what we are afraid of, we have only Jesus. If I have him, it's enough. He is my bread of life. Church, listen. He's my contentment when I feel I'm suffering because I don't have what I want. He's my inexpressible joy when I'm in a miserable circumstance. He's my peace that passes understanding when I'm suffering an insurmountable challenge. He's my abundant life when I've suffered the loss of all things. Only Jesus. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'm so grateful for This difficult message. Right now, Lord, I pray for every person in this room. Help us to rest with only Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.